My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God and we are continuing our journey through Matthew chapter 27. Today we're going to be looking at verses 24 to 31, which is where Pilate tries to avoid the responsibility for Jesus' death. And we pick up in verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all against either the religious leaders, Judas, Jesus himself or uh, the multitudes, but rather that a tumult was rising. He took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. It was out of character for Pilate to really give up this way to the religious leaders in the crowds uh, because it just wasn't who he was. And But he saw that he couldn't win. Now, he could have chosen differently, could have come up with a different choice, but he didn't. So what does he do? He washes his hands and he says, it's out of my control. I don't wish Jesus any harm, but look, these things happen. It is what it is. And the power and responsibility to do uh, whatever was going to happen to Jesus' life lay in the hands of Pilate. And history should never forget that. He said, I find no fault in him. But that was not enough. Because he tried to come up with a clever solution in releasing a prisoner at Passover. And he found that that was no solution. So he washes his hands. Well, what a useless thing to do. As if like you could wash your hands and go, yep, I'm all good for eternity. And I think that's what a lot of people do today. They wash their hands. They hear the gospel message. They hear the message of Jesus. They wash their hands and go, no, I heard it. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm a good person. And so Pilate couldn't escape responsibility. And, and he will always be associated with the crime of sending Jesus to the cross. And it has been echoed through history that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Spurgeon said this, Oh, the daring of Pilate thus in the sight of God to commit murder and to disclaim it. There is a strange mingling of cowardliness and courage about many men. They are afraid of a man, but not afraid of the eternal God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So he says, I'm innocent of the blood of this person, this just person. Now, here we've got hidden in Pilate's attempt at self-justification, a declaration that Jesus is innocent. He said, this is a just man. Now, the irony here is that he's saying Jesus is innocent. Then he wants to declare himself innocent. So the irony is, is that Jesus really is innocent and he's really not. And just because he said, I'm innocent, doesn't make him innocent. Now, this has caused a lot of problems. Uh, this has been a key igniter for anti-Semitism 
for Jewish hatred through the centuries and millennia, where some Christians have wanted to allow Pilate to be innocent and then put all the blame on the Jewish people. Uh, some people said that um, Pilate and, and his wife became Christians, Barclay. To this day, the Coptic Church ranks both Pilate and his wife as saints. But the, the multitudes cry out, his, his blood be on us and our children. Now, they didn't have any understanding of what they were saying or what they were asking for. They didn't understand the glory of Jesus cleansing blood. They didn't understand how wonderful it would be in a positive way to have his blood be on them and their children. And they didn't understand the enormity of the crime uh, that they were committing by calling for the execution of this sinless son of God. And the judgment that was going to be visited on their children 40 years later when Jerusalem was was totally destroyed. Now, even though they said his blood be on us and on our children, uh, this passage, that statement has been wrongly used by misguided Christians to persecute Jews. They didn't understand that even if this did put these people and their descendants under a curse, it was never the duty of the church to bring this curse to bear upon the Jewish people. See, God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, I'll bless those who bless you and curse you, those who curse you. And any Christian who was wicked enough and foolish enough to curse the Jewish people as being the murderer of Jesus has indeed brought upon themselves a curse by God in one way or another. Pilate was responsible for the death of Jesus. He was the one. He held Jesus' life and death in his hands. So then we move on to verse 26. Then Pilate releases Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, scourged, we need to talk about what scourged is because one word needs a lot of explanation. What does it mean for somebody to be scourged? The the blows came from a whip that had a lot of leather strands and each had little sharp pieces of bone woven into them, had little pieces of metal, lead usually, and it, it basically just tore the flesh all the way to the bones. And it was not unusual for a criminal to actually die of scourging even before they were crucified. And the internal organs of whoever was being scourged often would just be pulled out. Side, you could see them come outside the body. Uh, I'm going to read to you some quotes from Dr. William Edwards. He wrote a book, uh, sorry, an article, I apologize. It was called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. And it was in the journal American uh, Medical Association, Journal of the American Medical Association uh, in March 1986. He said, scourging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution. Only women and Roman senators or soldiers, uh, except in cases of desertion, were exempt. The goal of scourging was to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse and death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls balls would cause deep contusions. The leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. 
pain and blood loss generally set, set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive the cross. The severe scourging, scourging, with its intense pain and appreciable blood loss, most probably left Jesus in a pre-shock state. Moreover, hematidrosis had rendered his skin particularly tender. What is hematidrosis? I'm going to just pause there and tell you. Hematidrosis, tidrosis, and, I, and my apologies for not pronouncing it correctly, is a condition where the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands, they rupture, causing them to exude blood. And it occurs under conditions of extreme physical and emotional stress. And this is what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus sweated blood in Luke chapter 22. The physical and mental abuse handed out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water and sleep, also contributed to Jesus' generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. The blows of scourging would usually lessen, in other words, they would, they would stop being as severe, as the criminal just eventually just gave in, said, yes, I confess, I'm sorry, and they, they'd start to let off a little bit. But because Jesus remained silent and, and maintained his innocence, there was no let off. It was as hard from the first thrashing to the very last. Let's go on to verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now, a whole garrison. Why? They didn't need a garrison around Jesus. He wasn't a threat to anybody. Uh, they, they only really needed what was called a Quaternion, which is a group of four soldiers, to carry out an execution. But they gathered the whole garrison around him. And it, 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 it was really just an incredible display. Spurgeon said, take heed of sinning in a crowd. Young man, abandon the idea that you may sin in a crowd. Beware of the notion that because many do it, it is less a guilt to any one of them. Um, now, what was garrison? A garrison was a detachment. That was called a spiera. And in a full spiera, there were 600 men. And these soldiers were Pilate's private bodyguards. And they probably accompanied him from Caesarea, which is where his permanent headquarters were. And they, here they are now in this praetorium. Why is it called a praetorium? Uh, when you go to Jerusalem in Israel, you'll see examples of what a praetorium looks like. And it was called that because uh, from the, the word praetor, praetorium, 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 I should say. And a praetor was a principal magistrate amongst the Romans. And his business was to administer justice in the absence of a consul. And you could say in English, this was termed a courthouse. Um, so they take him there, they mock him, they say, how king of the Jews... 
this is all about humiliation, it's just to humiliate Jesus. The Jewish rulers had already mocked Jesus as the Messiah, and now the Roman powers are mocking him as the king. And they stripped him. Let me, let me just read you some observations from uh, David Guzik that I love. They stripped him. When a prisoner was crucified, they were often nailed to the cross naked, simply to increase their humiliation. Jesus hasn't yet been crucified, but his humiliation had begun and he was publicly stripped. He, they put a scarlet robe on him. Kings and rulers often wore scarlet because the dyes to make fabrics that color were expensive. The scarlet robe was intended as cruel irony. They had twisted a crown of thorns. Kings wear crowns but not crowns of torture. The specific thorn brushes of this region have long, hard, sharp thorns. This was a crown that cut, pierced, and bloodied the head of the king who wore it. They put a reed in his right hand. Kings hold scepters, but glorious, ornate scepters that symbolize their power. In their mockery of Jesus, they gave him a scepter, but it was just a thin, weak reed. They bowed the knee before him. Kings are honoured. So they offered mocking worship to this king and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Kings are greeted with royal titles. So in their spite, they mocked Jesus with this title. It was meant to humiliate Jesus, but it was also meant to humiliate the Jews, saying, this is the best king that they can come up with. I love those observations because that's what each of those things symbolises. And then they start to spit on him. Then they get the reed and they start smacking him over the head with it. Uh, So now they've gone from mockery to cruelty and they take the this fake scepter. They take the mock royal robe off him and they spit in his face and they hurl their fists at him. And it's interesting, Spurgeon made this observation. Even the hands that drove the nails into his hands and to the cross did only what they were commanded to do. Yet they spat in his face just for the pleasure of doing it. But my brethren, bad as man is, methinks he never was so bad. Or rather, his badness never came out to the full so much. As when gathering all his spite, his pride, his lust, his desperate defiance, his abominable wickedness into one mouthful, he spat into the face of the Son of God himself. This is where Jesus, even now, is standing in the place of sinners. Because that's what the devil wants to do to you and I. He wants to spit in our face. And unfortunately, what do we do? We spit in Jesus' face by how we live. It's very possible for you and I to mock Jesus by the way we live. When we live the same as people who aren't Christians, we mock Jesus. Spurgeon said, you have mocked him by your feigned worship. Thus you have put the purple robe on him. For that purple robe meant that they made him a nominal king, a king who was not in truth a king, but a mere show. Your Sunday religion, which has been forgotten in the week, has been a scepter of reed, a powerless ensign, a mere sham. You have mocked and insulted him, even in your hymns and your prayers, for your religion is a pretense with no heart in it. You brought him an adoration. There was no adoration. A confession that was no confession and a prayer that was no prayer. Is it not so? And 
Spurgeon wondered how Matthew heard of this crown of thorns and the mocking that went along with it. And he wonders if it was not maybe one of the soldiers that was later converted and came to faith in Jesus because Matthew wasn't there and who would have told him? Only The only person that could have told Matthew what happened in that praetorium must have been a Roman soldier. Our Lord's marred but patient visage preached such a sermon that one at least who gazed upon it felt its mysterious power, felt that such patience was more than human and accepted the the thorn-crowned saviour as henceforth his Lord and his King. You ever thought about that? One of the soldiers. One of the soldiers got saved. What an amazing altar call that would have been. I see that hand. Wow. Um... So then they lead him away to be crucified. Uh, why did they do that? The the march from the Praetorium to the place of crucifixion was basically just like an ad campaign. It was like marching somebody on the longest possible journey so people could see, you, you want to know what happens when you mess with us? This is what happens. It doesn't go well. Um, Barclay, the criminal was led to the scene of crucifixion by a long, as long a route as possible so that as many people as possible might see him and take warning from the grim sight. So as Jesus was led away to be crucified, uh, just like all victims of crucifixion, he was forced to carry the wood uh, that he would hang upon. Now, the, the wood of the entire cross was about 300 pounds, but the victim usually only cross, carried the crossbar, which weighed around 75 to 125 pounds. Um, let's say 30 to 60 kilograms. And when the victim carried the crossbar, they were usually stripped naked and their hands were tied to the wood. So this is how they had to carry it. The upright beams of the cross were already in the ground and usually fixed in a place visible outside the city. Uh, usually beside a major road, uh, so that people could just, just reminded, this is what will happen. That's where you'll end up. No doubt Jesus maybe passed the uprights of the cross that he was going to be hung on. Guzik said this, when Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me in Matthew 16. This is exactly the scene that he had in mind. Everyone knew what the cross was, an unrelenting instrument of death and only death. The cross wasn't about religious ceremonies. It wasn't about traditions and spiritual feelings. The cross was a way to execute people. But in these 20 centuries after the death of Jesus, we have sanitized and ritualized the cross. How would we receive it if Jesus said, walk down death row daily and follow me? Taking up your cross wasn't a journey. It was a one-way trip. There was no return ticket. It was never meant to be a round trip. So what's the observation today? The observation is I'm in awe that Jesus never relented. He never relented or flinched once his... uh, Answer was received from God, which was an answer of silence when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, if this cup can be taken from me, nevertheless, not my will be done. God never said anything. There was silence. Jesus knew what that meant. There was no new direction. There was no new information to be given. Once he had received that, he sweats blood because now he knows what's going to happen. And he took every single blow. He took every single whip. He took every single bit of pain, every bit of spit in his face just for me. Just for you. He was unrelenting. He accepted God's position even 
as he took every blow. Do you and I do that? Do we say we'll only accept God's position as long as it doesn't involve any hurt or pain for us or shame for us? I think some some Christians, is, they get spat on once, and that's it, they're out, they're done. They get one nail, one physical condition. Well, I thought being a Christian I meant I, I couldn't die of cancer because I love Jesus. No, we live in a broken world. God's not giving you that cancer to, to kill you. That's We live in a broken world because sin started in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus saved us by his decision made in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is a reality to our serving of Jesus, which is that it must be connected to our understanding of what the gift actually is. It's a gift of eternal life in heaven. It's not a gift of a life on this planet filled with no pain. It's not a gift on the, of life on this planet where nothing goes wrong and people don't hate us unjustly or that we have to suffer horrible things unjustly. It's got nothing to do with that. Uh, healing is real, but all, all healing ever does for somebody when they experience a miraculous supernatural hearing, healing is they get a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will be like. But eventually everybody's going to die even if you get healed. So... So what we have is we have a reminder here of Jesus' death on the cross to our eternity, which means that what we must do while we're here is say yes to God. And I think sometimes God says to us, I want you to do something. And then later on when things get a little tough, we ask him again, really, I've got to really do this? And there's silence. And you're like, I just don't feel like God. I can't hear God anymore. The reason you can't hear God is because he's not speaking to you. Because he told you what to do and you just got to go and do it. And yes, he knows that it's hard and he knows it's tough and he knows there's a bit of persecution and he knows somebody's spitting in your face. But ultimately, Jesus, see, God came in the form of Jesus so that when we prayed to our Father in heaven, that we would understand that he gets what it's like to have your face spat on. So lots to observe today. What do you observe? Let me know in the comments below. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, just to be reminded of what Jesus did on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.